Let's take our Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 20 this morning. Genesis 20, and let's read from verse 1. As we begin, it says, And Abraham journeyed from thence toward the south country, and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur, and journeyed in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech king of Gerar sent and took Sarah. Let's give me that time to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> the Lord and Father, we thank you, Lord, that we are able to gather around your word this morning. Lord, we pray as we continue our study in the life of Abraham here in the book of Genesis, but you bless our time together. Lord, I pray that this morning you give me wisdom and guidance that only you can give, that you would empower me through the Spirit now and help me to speak clearly, help me to speak your words. And Lord, I pray that you would challenge us, you would convict us, you would bless us through your word, refresh us this morning, and may we leave uh, singing your praises. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In Genesis chapter 20, uh, we find an event that really at first as we read chapter 20, we find it difficult to understand uh, this chapter, don't we? Not not difficult to understand because it's a difficult passage in the sense that it's complicated or confusing. Now we find it difficult to understand because we've seen Abraham and Sarah do this exact same thing once before, haven't we? It's almost like a repeat. It's almost the exact same story. And yet it's happening in a different place at a different time in their lives. The, the first event happened almost 25 years before this. And so there's a, there's a large gap between these two events. That first event took place in chapter 12, if you remember. Abraham had taken his family down into Egypt and he lied about Sarah. He said that she was his sister in a foolish attempt to protect his own life. And of course, uh, Sarah was taken by the Pharaoh, king of Egypt there, and of course he ended up losing his testimony. He had to leave Egypt in disgrace. Now we saw there in Genesis chapter 12 that they were guilty of walking by sight and not by faith. You know, in the years since that event, in the years following, Abraham has really gone, uh, sorry, undergone some dramatic spiritual growth, hasn't he? There's a lot that's happened in those chapters between chapter 12 and And where we are today in chapter 20, there's a lot that's taken place, a lot of spiritual growth. You know, he's seen the Lord in those chapters. He's seen the Lord over and over again answer his prayers. He's seen the Lord in those chapters firsthand work miracles in his life. You know, he's met with the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ, pre-incarnate, coming to meet with him. He's talked with the Lord. The Lord is issued to him his covenant and he sealed that covenant, those promises to Abraham. Now he's heard the Lord declare to him in chapter 15 and verse 1, Fear not, Abraham, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. In chapter 17 and verse 1, the Lord said, I am the almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. I am El Shaddai, the all-sufficient, all-powerful one. You see, between chapter 12 and chapter 20, in all those years, a lot has happened, hasn't it? A lot has taken place. 
know, their faith has been tested in those years, but God has never failed them, not once. God has not failed them, and their faith has been increasing, hasn't it? Abraham's faith has been increased, and it's been strengthened in these chapters. And so after so many years, after so many blessings, after so much spiritual growth, how is it then that here in chapter 20 we find Abraham back where he was 25 years ago? How do we find him back there again, being so foolish to repeat this sin all over again? Indeed, it is difficult to understand how this came to pass. But as we'll see this morning, what it teaches us is that no matter how spiritual we may be, we can all find ourselves back in sin. And it's for this reason, you know, God's word never shies away from recording the sins of his servants. And you look through the word of God and God never shies away, does he? Think of David, you know, one man comes to mind, you know, with his sin, his wickedness, great man of God. You know, he walked before the Lord. He had great relation with God. And yet he sinned with Bathsheba. He sinned by murdering her husband. You know, the Lord doesn't shy away from recording the sins of his servants. And the reason is because these things, as Romans 15 verse 4 declares, they're written for our learning. They're written for our learning. They're recorded to help us to be aware and to be mindful of our own spiritual walk, our own walk with the Lord. And so this morning, with these things in mind, let us consider uh, the events before us. We see first of all here this morning that Abraham and Sarah lie yet again. We read it there in verse 1. It says, And Abraham journeyed from thence toward the south country and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. As the chapter begins, what we see is we see Abraham here making the the snap decision to pack up everything and to move from Hebron, to move down to the south, the southern end of the land of Canaan, the land that God had promised to him. That's where we see there in verse 1, it says that he uh, journeyed toward the south country and dwelled between Kadesh and Shur and sojourned in Gerar. Okay, so he's headed south to, towards the southern end, the southern regions of the land God had promised to him. You know, Abraham had been dwelling in the plain of Mamre at Hebron. He'd been dwelling there since the end of chapter 13. Just go back there. Chapter 13, verse 18, it says, Then Abraham removed his tent, and came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and built there an altar unto the Lord. And so since then, chapter 13, verse 18, since then Abraham and his family have been dwelling here in the plain of Mamre in Hebron. And so they've been dwelling here for basically 20 odd years. They've been living in this spot. And it's here at this particular place that he's experienced all of these blessings. It's here the Lord has met with him on numerous occasions. And indeed, of course, most recently, the Lord had met with him and told him that he was going to have a son. Not a year from now. He's going to have a son, and they would name his name, call him Isaac. And so because of this, you know, as we read chapter 20, we would expect, wouldn't we? We would expect to find him staying in Hebron. 
wouldn't we? We expect to see him stay where God has given him all these blessings, all these wonderful things, stay in this hallowed place where he met with the Lord. Surely he'd stay there and he'd wait this next year out as he waits for his son to be born. And yet suddenly we find Abraham make the decision to pack up his tent and to move to the south. And he moves into enemy territory. And so it does indeed seem like a strange move and it there's no indication here that he gets any direction from the Lord. He doesn't seek the Lord first. He just makes this decision. You know, the scriptures here give us no reason why Abraham makes this move. We're not told the reason behind his decision to journey south. And so we're left to speculate. But because it happens so quickly after the events of chapter 19, it would seem like the two are connected. Of course, as we saw last Sunday, chapter 19, we saw God's judgment, God's wrath poured out upon Sodom and Gomorrah in the form of fire and brimstone from heaven. And so it would seem reasonable to assume that his moving has something to do with that judgment. Okay, their recent destruction, you know, perhaps he didn't want to live in the hills overlooking this destroyed valley, this destroyed region any longer. We simply don't know. But for whatever reason, he suddenly decides to pack up everything and he journeys south, sojourning, it says, in Gerar. Now, Gerar at this time was the capital city of the budding Philistine nation. Now, the commentator Meyer writes this, he says, Gerar was the capital of a race of men who had dispossessed the original inhabitants of the land and were gradually passing from the condition of wandering shepherd life into that of a settled and warlike nation, afterwards to be known to the Hebrews by the dreaded name Philistines. And so he heads down and dwells amongst the Philistines, this nation that's just beginning to strengthen. That's where he goes. That's where he's dwelling. That's where he is sojourning at this time. And immediately upon arriving in this region, Abraham and Sarah revert back to walking by Sight, not by faith, they walk by sights. And in verse 2, we see that he lies about his wife, declaring that she is his sister. Read verse 2 again with me. It says, And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. So he tells this familiar lie that Sarah is simply his sister. She's not my wife, she's my sister. And Abimelech immediately takes her into his harem to be one of his wives. Now, Abraham here in chapter 20 tells the exact same lie as chapter 12 with the exact same result. Exact same lie, exact same results. And verse 11 here in chapter 20 tells us why Abraham and Sarah told this lie. Just drop down to verse 11. It says, And Abraham said, Because I thought, surely the fear of God is in this place, and they will slay me for my wife's sake. The reason they did this was fear. Abraham and Sarah were afraid. They saw the Philistines were not a people of God, were not someone who feared the Lord. And so immediately they were afraid that this ungodly nation would kill Abraham and take Sarah by force. They were afraid of men. And that's what led to this line. Now we read this fear 
they're going to kill Abraham to take Sarah by force. Read that and we wonder how it is that when she's almost 90 years old, she's of any attraction to the men here in the Philistine nation. She's 90. How is it that the, the heathen king Abimelech would be physically attracted to her at all? But we need to remember that we're not that far from the events of the flood, are we? Okay, we've got to put it in perspective. We're not that far from the events of the flood. We're not that far removed. And so people are still living much longer lives. And that means that their bodies, of course, are aging much slower. My commentator Barnes writes this. He says, Sarah, though now 89 years of age, was as youthful in look as a person of 40 would now be. And so she probably looked like she was about 40. Okay? That sort of puts it a bit more in perspective as to why he's fearful that they would take his wife. And so driven by this fear, walking by sight, they tell this lie. And Sarah is still taken, but Abraham's not killed. That was the whole intent of the lie. Sarah's taken into the harem of Abimelech. You know, fear of man was Abraham's problem, wasn't it? And Sarah's fear of man. And it's hard to understand how they were back here in this place. So we talked about this in the introductions. It's hard to understand how they're back here fearing man again. I mean, in this moment in time, Abraham forgets everything, doesn't he? He forgets that his God is the Almighty God. Chapter 17, verse 1. That his God is El Shaddai, the all-sufficient, all-powerful one. He forgets that his God said, I am your shield. He forgets that God is on his side and with God on his side, he has nothing to fear from the ungodly men of Gerar or anywhere else. He doesn't have to fear. He forgets all this. Instead, he fears man, and it's this fear that leads him into sin. And it's the same thing back in chapter 12. Let's just go back there. Chapter 12 and verse 12. We're starting verse 11. It says, And it came to pass, when he was come near to, to enter into Egypt, that he said unto Sarai, his wife, Behold now, I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. Therefore it shall come to pass, when the Egyptians shall see thee, they shall say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will save thee alive. Say, I pray thee that thou art my sister, that may be well with me for thy sake, and my soul shall live because of thee. And so in chapter 12, verse 12, it was the, the same thing. It was the fear of men that led them to make this decision to tell this lie the first time. And it's the same thing here in chapter 20. It's the fear of men that leads them into this sin. So we have the same sin committed for the same reason with the same consequences. You know, as we read this, we're reminded of just how quick and just how easy it is for all of us to fall back into old sinful habits. To end up committing the same sins of the past, sins that we thought we had the victory over, uh, that are dealt with, that we never struggle with again, somehow we end up back there again and we look around and think, how did I end up here? That's what happens with Abraham. Somehow he ends up back doing something he struggled with 25 years ago. You know, and the reason was because Abraham put himself in a similar place of temptation. You notice that? A similar situation, a similar place of temptation. The first time it was in Egypt, this time it's in Gerar, but the situation is the same, the temptation is the same, and Abraham 
fails in the same way. Meyer notes this. He says, we are never safe so long as we are in this world. Abraham was an old man. Years had passed since that sin had shown itself last. During that time, he had been growing and learning much. But alas, the snake was scorched, not killed. The weeds were cut down, not eradicated. Never boast yourself against once cherished sins. Only by God's grace are they kept in check. And if you cease to abide in Christ, they will revive and revisit you. That's so true. Can't boast about uh, sins that we've squashed in the past because we're not careful. We'll find ourselves like Abraham in a place of temptation and failing in the same way that we struggled in the past. Now, Pastor Davis has been preaching through Romans and he's been talking about the victorious Christian life and how it comes from walking in the Spirit, abiding in Christ. You know, in Abraham and Lot, we've had a great contrast of the two things, haven't we? Abraham is a, a man walking in the Spirit, abiding in Christ, okay? A demonstration of that life. Lot, a carnal Christian, walking in the flesh. You know, we're reminded here that even those who are walking in the Spirit can lapse, can't they? You see, this walk in the Spirit is an ongoing thing. It's a daily thing. It's not something we just do once and that's it. We never struggle again. We have to daily walk in the spirits. You see, the godly can and do fall into sin. If we stop walking in the spirits, stop walking by faith, we walk by sight, we will quickly find ourselves like Abraham back in a place of sin. And perhaps even in the same sins that we've struggled with in the past and we thought we'd never struggle with again. You see, the point is, it's an ongoing walk. It's a process of sanctification, isn't it? As we get closer to Him. We must daily walk by faith and not by sight. We must daily keep our eyes on Him and walk in the spirits. As Galatians 5.16 says, Walk in the spirits and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh must daily walk in the spirit because if we get out of that and we walk in the flesh walk by sight we'll find ourselves like Abraham in a place of temptation and in a place of sin we see secondly now this morning that God judges Abimelech God judges Abimelech look in verse 3 it says but God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him behold thou art but a dead man the woman which thou hast taken uh, for she is a man's wife. Now in this next section here, we learn that even though Abraham has sinned, even though he's walking in the flesh at this point in time, he's got his eyes off the Lord, even though Abraham's doing this, God hasn't turned his back on him, has he? God hasn't turned his back on his servant. God has not forsaken him. God has not forgotten him. God has not forgotten his promises. And so God is still working on Abraham's behalf. God is still working to to bring him out of this situation so that he can keep his promises to him. And you see, what we see here is nothing short of the grace and mercy of God once again as God intervenes for Abraham and Sarah. You see, the Lord immediately intervenes here to protect Sarah's purity and to protect the purity of the promised line. The commentator Barnhouse, he noted this. He said, suppose 
Abimelech had taken Sarah and God had not intervened. Two seeds would have been at the door to Sarah's womb. And to this day, an element of doubt would cling to the ancestry of our Lord. That's a really good point. If the Lord had not intervened and Abimelech had indeed touched Sarah, there would have been that element of doubt, wouldn't there? But the Lord intervenes. He protects her purity. He protects the purity of the promised line, the promised seed. And so it was important that the Lord acted immediately to intervene. And he does so by preventing Abimelech from touching Sarah. Look in verse 6. It says, And God said unto him in a dream, Yea, I know that thou didst this in the integrity of thy heart, for I also withheld thee from sinning against me. Therefore suffered I thee not to touch her. The Lord prevented Abimelech from touching her, from having relations with Sarah. And it would seem that this was accomplished in the form of a disease or sickness, which affected not just Abimelech, but indeed it affected his whole house as well. Look in verse 17. <clears throat> Excuse me. Verse 17, it says, So Abraham prayed unto God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maidservants, and they bare children. For the Lord had fast closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. And so this sickness, this disease, whatever it was, it affected the whole house. They were all under this. And it prevented Abimelech from touching Sarah. It protected her purity, protected the promised line. And having afflicted Abimelech with this disease, the Lord now appears to him in a dream and tells him why this has happened. He explains to him the significance of what's happening under him. Look in verse 3. It says, But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, thou art but a dead man, for the woman which thou hast taken, for she is a man's wife. The Lord appears to him in a dream and the Lord tells him clearly that the reason for this infirmity is because he's taken another man's wife. The Lord tells him that because of this, he's under a sentence of death. He says, thou art a dead man. He says, you're under a sentence of death unless you restore Sarah to Abraham. In verse 4 and 5, we see Abimelech protest his innocence, don't we? Look in verse 4. It says, but Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, wilt thou slay also a righteous nation? Said he not unto me, she is my sister, and she even... She herself, that's right, and even, even she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hands have I done this. He protests his innocence. A bit like he says to the Lord, he says, you know, I've only done what's accepted in my culture and I did it in innocency. Now, of course, this doesn't make it right, you know, to take multiple wives. It doesn't make it holy or just. But it was accepted in those days that the, the king would take multiple wives and concubines. It was accepted in their culture that he would take them into his harem. It was a show of his power. It was a, a way of making alliances with other nations and other people. And so Abimelech, he'd only done what his culture said to do. He'd done this in innocency, believing Sarah to be Abraham's sister. He believed the lie that he'd been told, and he acted upon it in good faith, didn't he? And God responds to this plea in verse 6 by acknowledging Abimelech's innocency. 
Look in verse 6. It says, And God said unto him in a dream, Yea, I know that thou didst this in the integrity of thy hearts. For I also withheld thee from sinning against me, therefore suffered I thee not to touch her. God says, I know that you did this in integrity of heart. God knew his heart. God knew he'd been lied to. God knew that he'd simply acted upon that lie and it was for that reason that God had acted to make sure he didn't go any further. God had intervened, preventing him from committing a far worse sin as well. You know, the Lord also then goes on to warn Abimelech. He says, if you don't immediately rectify the problem, then you're going to die and your house is going to die as well. Look in verse 7. The Lord says, Now therefore restore the man his wife, for he is a prophet, and he shall pray for thee, and thou shalt live. And if thou restore her not, know that thou shalt surely die, thou and all that are thine. The Lord makes it clear, yes, you did it in integrity of heart, but you now need to rectify the problem. You need to deal with it. Deal with the sin. And so the responsibility now rests upon Abimelech, doesn't it? To respond. To restore Sarah and to ask Abraham to pray for him and his house so they might be healed. You know, before this night, when Abimelech has this dream and he talks with the Lord, he probably didn't know much about God. He's a heathen king of a heathen nation who didn't fear the Lord, probably didn't know anything about the Lord and about God's power, but he certainly did now, didn't he? And when he woke up from this, this dream, we see that he's full of fear as he tells his servants. Look in verse 8. It says, Then therefore Abimelech rose early in the morning and called his servants and told all these things in their ears, and the men were sore afraid. He rises up early, he calls his servants, he tells them what he's he's experienced in the night and they're all filled with fear there's a sense of urgency now isn't there there's a sense of urgency to deal with this problem and to get out from under the wrath of god and so immediately we see abimelech send for abraham we see thirdly now this morning abraham and sarah rebuked we see them rebuked it says in verse 9 Then Abimelech called Abraham and said unto him, What hast thou done unto us? And what have I offended thee? Thou hast brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin. Thou hast not done deeds unto me. Sorry, thou hast done deeds unto me that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said unto Abraham, What sawest thou that thou hast done this thing? You know, here we see the sad consequence of Abraham's sin. The sad consequence of him getting his eyes off God and onto man and fearing man and telling this lie. You know, we see here the man of God, the prophet of God, the friend of God. We see him called in before a pagan king and he is rebuked for his sin. Look there again in verse 9. It says, Then Abimelech called Abraham and said unto him, What hast thou done unto us? And what have I offended thee? For thou hast brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin thou hast done deeds unto me that ought not to be done the king pulls calls him in and the king rebukes him sharply here for his sin for what he has done you know the roles here are really reversed aren't they abraham is the prophet of god the friend of god he should have been the one rebuking abimelech for his sin he should have been one that's standing representing god 
rebuking sin and wickedness. But instead, he's standing before a pagan king as the pagan king who's in the right stands and rebukes him, rebukes God's servants. It's a sad sight indeed, isn't it? It's a sad sight. You see, this is the consequence that comes from sin in the life of God's people, public sin. It leads to a loss of testimony. It leads to a loss of witness before the unsaved. Now, how is Abraham after this going to talk to his pagan neighbors about God? How is he going to talk to them about the Lord, his God, and tell them about what he'd done for them and, and, and what he wanted to do for them? And how is he going to do this when he himself lied in such a way he dishonored his God? He denied his God. He lost his testimony. He lost his witness. You know, one commentator wrote this. He said, a bad man's example has little influence over good men. But the bad example of a good man, eminent in station and established in reputation, has an enormous power for evil. Abraham's failure here was an enormous power for evil, wasn't it? This is the man of God, and everyone knew who Abraham was. He was known in the region. He's the man of God, and yet here he is. He's lied and he's brought this sin and wickedness into the, the Philistine nation. He's caused all these problems, this disease, because of his sin. You see, his sin it was an enormous power for evil, wasn't it? His lack of a godly example. Well, we must ever be careful to walk before men in a way that honours the Lord. Lest we, like Abraham, destroy our testimony before men. Let's just go over to the New Testament, Colossians chapter 4. Tell with me, Colossians 4. In Colossians 4, verse 5, it says, Walk in wisdom toward them that are without. Redeeming the time, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how to answer, sorry, how you ought to answer every Man, walk in wisdom toward them who are without. Turn over to First Thessalonians 4 as well. First Thessalonians 4. And verse 12. Similar thing. It says, That you may walk honestly toward them that are without, that you may have lack of nothing. Both these passages talk about us making sure that we walk honestly. We walk in wisdom before them who are without, those who are the unsaved. You know, walk in wisdom, walk honestly before them. Be careful how we speak. Be careful how we act around the unsaved. You know, Philippians 1 verse 27 tells us to make sure our conversation, our conduct reflects the gospel. Just go there, Philippians 1. Philippians 1 verse 27 says this, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. That whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Your conduct, our conduct is to be a reflection of the gospel in accordance with the gospel. We have to live the truth in our lives. 
You know, sadly, Abraham failed to do this, didn't he? He failed here, and indeed, we all fail at times. We can't be too critical of Abraham, can we? We all fail at times. But Abraham failed, and the consequence of this was a loss of testimony. It was a loss of witness before the heathen. Now, as we read verse 9 there in chapter 20, we get a sense of just how offended Abimelech is. Just go back there. <clears throat> now, we read it before, but... Let's read verse 9 again. It says, Then Abimelech called Abraham and said unto him, What hast thou done unto us? And what have I offended thee? That thou hast brought me, uh, sorry, brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin. Thou hast done deeds unto me that ought not to be done. You get a sense of just how offended he is, don't you? Here's this man who's come and journeyed in his land and he's committed this sin and led to all these consequences for his nation. And Abimelech's looking at him and saying, why have you done this? You've done what ought not to be done. Even Abimelech knew that this was wicked, this was, this was wrong, this lie, and the consequences of it. Even a pagan king recognised it should not be done. And he, he's disgusted by it, isn't he? You can sense it in his voice. He's offended by this, this sin. And in verse 10, he asks Abraham, he says, explain yourself. Look in verse 10. It says, And Abimelech said unto Abraham, what sawest thou that thou hast done this thing? He says, Abraham, explain yourself. Now really, this is Abraham's chance now, isn't it? This is his chance to explain himself. And it's his chance to humble himself and admit his sin. This is his opportunity. If he's going to restore his testimony, if he's going to restore his witness, this is the time to do it. When the king says to him, why have you done this? This is his chance to apologize. This is his chance to get things right. Barnhouse writes this. He says, Abraham should have said, forgive me, Abimelech, for dishonoring both you and my God. My selfish cowardice overwhelmed me. And I denied my God by, by fearing that he who called me could not take care of me. He is not as your gods of wood and stone. He is the God of glory. He is the living God, the creator, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth. He told me he would be my shield and my exceeding great reward and supplier of all my needs. In sinning against him, I sinned against you. Forgive me. Abimelech. If he had done that right now, he could have salvaged some of his testimony, couldn't he? He could have possibly have led Abimelech to the Lord in some way. This is his chance. This is his opportunity to do the right thing, to humble himself, to apologize, and to point Abimelech to God. But instead, what we read in verse 11 is him offering an excuse. An excuse. Look in verse 11, it says, And Abraham said, Because I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will slay me for my wife's sake. He says, The reason I did this is I feared you. I feared you. Basically here he says, I knew that you are a wicked nation who don't fear God, and I knew the wickedness you would do to me if I didn't do this. I knew you'd kill me to take Sarah. You see, he, he basically blames Abimelech, doesn't he? You notice that? He basically blames Abimelech and his people for Abraham's sin. 
He says, I did this because I was protecting myself from your wickedness. You see, the real problem here was not that they didn't fear God. The real problem was that Abraham was not walking in the fear of the Lord, was he? Abraham was acting as if he didn't fear God. If Abraham truly feared God, then he wouldn't have feared them and he wouldn't have told this lie. You see, the real problem was him. It was not the wicked nation. Can't ever blame the unsaved for our actions, can we? Can't blame the world for our sin. And not only that, but then he excuses his lie on the basis that it's a half-truth. Look at verse 12. He goes on, he says, And yet indeed she is my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house, that I said unto her, This is thy kindness, which thou shalt show unto me at every place whither we shall come. Save me. He is my brother. He basically says, well, it's a half-truth, as if that makes it any better. A half-truth is still a lie, isn't it? Still a lie. Abraham's excuse here did little, sorry, little to revive his testimony. It did little to restore any of it before this heathen king. You know, really what he needed to do was humbly apologize for his actions, for his sin. You know, in spite of all this, in verse 14 and 15, we see Abimelech now gives Abraham spoils. He gives him much gifts. Look in verse 14. It says, And Abimelech took sheep and oxen and men servants and women servants and gave them unto Abraham and restored him Sarah, his wife. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before thee. Dwell where it pleaseth thee. Abimelech, after hearing this, he then bestows upon Abraham all these gifts. He needs Abraham to pray for him, still doesn't need to be healed. But he gives him all these gifts. He restores Sarah. He gives Abraham permission to go and dwell wherever he wants in his land. He shows him all of this kindness in spite of Abraham's terrible actions towards him. You know, this kindness would have been even more of a rebuke, wouldn't it? Think about Romans 12, verse 20. It says that by doing this, you heap coals of fire upon their head. That's what Abimelech does here. He heaps coals of fire upon Abraham's head. Abraham's done all this wickedness to him. He's even offered these poor excuses, and he still shows this kindness to him. Imagine how Abraham's feeling by now after this rebuke. Not only that, Sarah is also rebuked in verse 16. It says, isn't it? And under Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given thy brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, he is to thee a covering of the eyes unto all that are with thee and with all other. Thus she was reproved. Abimelech rebukes her as well. Basically, he says to Sarah, he says, Abraham's your husband. Abraham's your husband. And so she, you have no need to fear other men. You have no need to fear the intentions of other men. He is a sufficient veil to prevent them looking at you. Is basically what he says. He rebukes her for her part in this lie. You know, she failed to trust God just as much as Abraham did, didn't she? They both failed to trust the Lord. And the chapter ends with Abraham now praying for Abimelech and his house, and God hears and heals them of this disease. Look in verse 17. It says, so Abraham prayed unto God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maidservants, and they bare children. For the Lord had fast closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech, 
because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Chapter ends with Abraham praying and God answering that prayer. And the fact that God answers his prayer tells us that Abraham did get things right with the Lord. He did humble himself and deal with his sin because in the Psalms it says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And so the fact that God hears and answers his prayer tells us he did humble himself. He did get things right with God. He did deal with his sin. But it took the rebuke, the sharp rebuke of a heathen king to bring it about. Beloved, we must all be wary of temptation. Be wary of putting ourselves in a place of temptation. Abraham, he put himself in a place where he'd failed before. He put himself in a similar situation and had terrible consequences. But we need to be on our guard. We need to walk circumspectly in this world, as Ephesians 5 verse 15 says. Walk circumspectly. Walk in wisdom. Seeking to avoid temptation. Flee youthful lusts. And maintain that godly testimony before men. We make sure daily that we walk by faith. That we walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. Beloved, when we do sin, and we will, let us also remember that God does not forsake us. We may have heard our testimony, but God still forgives, God will restore us, and God will use us. We just need to humble ourselves before Almighty God. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you once again today for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the example of Abraham. And Lord, the fact that you do record these times when even these godly men, Lord, fell through temptation into sin. And Lord, may you help us all to learn the lesson from this. Help us, Lord, to daily walk in the Spirit so we might not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Lord, help us daily to avoid the, those places of temptation, those means of temptation. Lord, help us to walk upright before you, walk circumspectly in this world, we pray. In Jesus' name.